2: This is where we live, I'm Lucy nall E-cigarettes have become popular, especially among young people, but are they any safer than cigarettes? Coming up, a researcher will share who's more likely to use e-cigs and will consider their impact on health. Are they as addictive as cigarettes? More later this hour. We'll also check in on a situation that has affected thousands of Connecticut residents who receive assistance through the State Department of Social Services, or DSS. Late last year, a California-based vendor was awarded a three-year, $140 million contract to provide non-emergency rides for sick adults and children on Medicaid. But state residents and advocates say the vendor is hard to get a hold of and has caused patients to miss important medical appointments like dialysis. Turns out this vendor has run into issues with another state, so why did Connecticut award Veo this contract? We'll learn more with the reporter from the day and hear from an attorney at the Center for Children's Advocacy that's coming up. And first, we're going to actually talk about something that shocked many of us late last week, and that's the story of homes in three different Massachusetts communities exploding or catching fire. Now, federal authorities continue to investigate the cause, but Massachusetts emergency officials say the explosions were likely caused by overpressurization. Now, do your, does your home use natural gas? Do you wonder if a similar situation could happen here? You can join us, 860-275-7266. You can email us where we live. at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me now in studio with more on this story is Luther Termel. He's a reporter for the New Haven Register, part of Hearst, Connecticut. Luther, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
2: Uh, We know that state and federal authorities are still investigating these explosions that happened in Lawrence, Andover, and North Andover, Massachusetts. Uh, What's the latest? Do they know the the cause yet?
3: Well, the last that I read yesterday was that... uh, the they have federal officials that are investigating and that it it could take a couple months before they have a preliminary finding and the, but they said a final finding could take up to 2 years i mean they, they they're very want to be very methodical um but i mean you know i think that we could see a finding a preliminary finding before the end of the year because obviously people want to know um What's going? What's happened? And if need be, hold hold the uh, utility accountable in in Massachusetts. Columbia Gas.
2: Now, there's a a company that uh, many of us are familiar with. EverSource has been brought in. Uh, Governor Baker has asked them to lead a recovery efforts uh, on the ground. So, exactly what is EverSource doing?
3: Well, I mean, and I should say that for people who don't follow this, I'm I only do because I'm uh, this is what this is my job, but. Uh, it was pretty much unprecedented. Uh, Governor Charlie Baker clare, declared a state of emergency, and the reason he declared a state of emergency was so that he could bring in EverSource to lead the uh, the recovery effort. Otherwise, that would have been left to Columbia Gas, and you know, even in the early stages, you know, while they were still putting out the fires, I, I think that. Um, the, the local officials and Governor Baker were dissatisfied with the responses that they were getting from Columbia Gas. So Eversource is coming in. I mean, you're having some of the people, some of the crews, uh, workers, the repair crews are coming in from Connecticut. Eversource also has a natural gas operation in Massachusetts, um, and they will lead the effort. Uh, when I spoke to... Uh, Mitch Gross, the spokesman for the company on Friday, he said that at this point they don't know how long their people will be there for, but that you know they're they're there to do the job and they're also getting some help from um, the two uh, utilities, or actually the multiple utilities owned by Avant Grid, uh, Southern Connecticut Gas and Connecticut Natural Gas here in Connecticut are also sending... Uh, Cruise to Massachusetts.
2: Now, in a statement from Eversource, they're very clear to note Connecticut systems are not connected to Columbia Gas system, obviously, because of the questions of whether that company, Columbia Gas, was negligent in, in causing uh, these explosions. So tell us, what do we know about Columbia Gas?
3: Well, to be honest with you, because they don't have any um Companies here in Connecticut, I would really be at a loss to to say anything about them. I I know that in looking over um, what's been reported thus far, I mean they've had some problems that uh, a couple TV stations in Massachusetts have reported. Uh, They had a problem in West Virginia, Um, but you know it's uh, I would be remiss to say anything more than you know what I've what I've seen other media outlets report. So.
2: Oh, when we think about uh, these uh, explosions uh, that happened in Massachusetts on Thursday, um, then we've seen uh, news coverage that there have been similar um, incidents around the country, one of note in 2010 in California. What happened there? Were uh, dozens of homes uh, also uh, exploded or caught fire?
3: Yeah, I think it was like three dozen homes. There were eight people that were killed. Um, And this uh, San Bruno is probably... Um, one of the more well known, I mean, it was it's near San Francisco. And um, ultimately it was determined that PG and E, Pacific Gas and Electric, the utility out there, um, had cut some corners, uh, and nobody went to jail as a result of it. I mean, you didn't have executives going to jail or anything, but they got a fairly significant fine. it took them, it took seven years to sort everything out. <laughs> which I guess isn't too encouraging for the people in Massachusetts but um but yeah I mean it was uh, it was something that you know I guess you could argue was negligent. I mean, they, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. They didn't spend the money that they were supposed to spend.
2: So when we look at these natural gas explosions, the New York Times reported since 1998, 646 serious gas distribution incidents, that's what they're called, uh, causing 221 deaths, nearly 1,000 people injured. This is all information from the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, uh, the federal arm that's also investigating what's happening in Massachusetts. What are the common causes of these explosions, Luther?
3: Well, I mean, it's. I don't think that the the numbers break it out, or uh, or maybe they do, but I I haven't seen a, a breakout of the numbers. I mean, there's a couple ways that natural gas pipelines have, a, have problems, uh, and some of it has to do with uh, the lines being punctured by backhose. Um, before I came to Connecticut, there was a, a fairly significant explosion that only ended up killing one person in in, uh, central New Jersey, uh, the Durham Woods explosion in 1994. And somebody hit hit a distribution line with a backhoe and (laughs) blew up an apartment complex. um, So, uh, I mean, that's critical to, you know, it's one thing when you have too much pressure being put into pipes that aren't appropriate for that level of pressure. Um so I mean I I don't know what the breakout is but but that's one of the ways and um I mean to a large extent you know I've been in at the re, uh, register for 20 years and covering utilities for most of that the Connecticut Natural Gas companies the collective the three big utilities have a fairly good safety record um uh, so you know it it's I don't think people should really be worried, but I think uh, by the same token, it, you know, it, it helps to have, be aware that these things can happen.
2: Luther Tormell is a reporter for the New Haven Register, part of Hearst, Connecticut. Uh, he's on where we live today as we look into this uh, story out of Massachusetts, where uh, three, two towns and a, a small city in Massachusetts uh, all dealt with uh, explosions uh, at the same time. Columbia Gas was doing, uh, I guess, routine work on on the pipelines, and and Luther, I've I've seen uh, reports that when we look at and we think about infrastructure, Massachusetts has uh, some of the oldest infrastructure in the country, and so. So you mentioned that here in Connecticut, uh, the company can I get?
3: Well, there's three. Okay. There's Southern Connecticut Gas, Connecticut Natural Gas, and EverSource, which is the former Yankee Gas before EverSource before EverSource ever existed. But.
2: And they all have uh, good safety records. But in terms of our infrastructure, talk us through um, you know how that's maintained, and because people have questions.
3: Well, for starters, I'd actually like to jump ahead for a second. I mean, the state utility regulatory agency, Public Utilities Regulatory Authority, or Pura, has a, a uh, pipeline inspection unit that does about 500 inspections a year. Um, the When the utilities do rate cases, when they go before the regulatory agencies to seek rate increases, they provide for them details in terms of you know, what work they've done already and want to get uh, reimbursed for and what work they plan to do in the future. Um, this, the, the big effort now is they're uh, replacing um, metal pipe with what essentially is PVC pipe. Now that may seem kind of odd, you may think that the the um, the the pipes that are made of metal are are, would be would be safer but according to what the news the, the the utility people tell me that it's uh, the PVC pipe is less subject to corrosion um and so they they go and replace a certain number of miles of pipe every year
2: uh, you can join our conversation here on where we live 8602757266 Marianne's calling from West Hartford Marianne go ahead Yes, um, I had a situation about five years ago
0: when there was a big push to get persons to convert from um, oil to natural gas heat, and we were one of those persons who did that. It was a nightmare. It was apparent that the, the um, company who was doing the conversion was overextended and under-trained to meet the demand that all the publicity um, generated. Uh, we ended up actually having um, oil contamination from our old system seeping into our new system. Much more complicated than that. Um, it was contaminated with carcinogens. It took us forever to get that situation straightened out. I uh, Later on, I found out that the big push was because the natural gas companies um, were looking forward to... Um, improving infrastructure exactly the problem in Massachusetts they were hoping to pass on the cost to customers and hence the push to get more and more people signed up as quickly as possible to the credit of the uh, Connecticut State Legislature my understanding is that they um, blocked that effort I do not trust the natural gas industry one bit and I do not trust the situation and this is an extraordinarily dangerous product. And if I had to do it over again, I never
2: would have converted. Thank you, Marianne, for your comments. Uh, Luther, did you want to respond to what, what Marianne was telling us?
3: Well, the, she's right about the expansion part. They, all of the utilities in earlier in this decade presented a, a 10-year expansion plan. Um, part of it is because they, they're looking to to make money, to make more money. And so they're expanding the distrib- distribution network. Um, I'm not sure exactly what, what she was talking about as far as the legislature putting a stop to it, because quite frankly, the legislature appro- approved it, and it was an um, initiative that uh, Governor Malloy and his then uh, uh, utilities commissioner, uh, uh, DEEP commissioner, Uh, We're wholeheartedly behind because the price of natural gas has gone down significantly to some extent because of the uh, fracking that's been going on. Uh, The natural gas is closer to us and has to travel a a shorter distance. And so uh, the price of natural gas has gone down and that's why they're doing it. but I understand why people are nervous about it. I mean, it's it's it's, it's it can be dangerous. But um, and you know, it's unfortunate what happened with what she was saying.
2: Now uh, we've got a, a tweet from Patty Luther. Uh, she writes in West Hartford, our gas is being upgraded to high pressure. Will this be on hold? Do we know anything about the work being done there?
3: Well, I I I don't know that I think it's probably too soon to say what Connecticut would do. I mean, I I know that Massachusetts, the governor Baker has uh, been talking about expanding natural gas service in eastern Massachusetts, and there's been some speculation uh, that 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 would be put on hold for a while. That the legislature there would be have a difficult time moving forward with it. But as far as Connecticut, I mean, typically. Uh, people are more reactive than they are proactive, and I I, I don't see that that would necessarily be put on hold because the legislature and the regulatory authorities don't have any evidence that uh, the incumbent utilities have been doing anything wrong.
2: Uh, before we head to break, you know another question on people's minds, Luther, is if an accident can cause this much damage, how severe would it be if someone intentionally sabotaged uh, gas lines? Let's talk. Is that a legitimate concern? And who's who's uh, looking into that?
3: Well, the, see that that's the thing. The thing that's interesting about that is, uh, understandably, companies don't want to talk about what kind of security measures sure. that are in place. But on the other hand, uh, there are there's so many pipelines, not just the distribution network, but the transmission network. I mean, we have three different transmission networks coming through parts of Connecticut. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess it's a legit uh, legitimate concern. But to be honest with you, um, I don't know that you're, you're ever going to get the utilities and or the state or federal government to say, here's what we're doing to protect the pipeline. But certainly um you know there's a lot of pipeline most of it is below ground uh but but sure if somebody wanted to to do it and wasn't afraid to give up their life because that's the other issue you know how would you trigger the explosion how would you set off the the, the, the destruction of the pipeline um somebody was willing to sacrifice their life yeah i guess it's possible but um but there the details you know, as far as the protection levels, I don't think you're ever going to get anybody to uh, discuss that.
2: Luther Turmel is a reporter for the New Haven Register. Luther, thanks for coming in. We appreciate it.
3: Thank you very much.
2: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, thousands of residents on Medicaid depend on transportation services to get to important appointments. But reliability has been an issue after the Connecticut Department of Social Services awarded a new three-year, $140 million contract. For those services... a California company we're going to find out more after the break and you can join us too 860-275-7266 find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Earlier this year, a California based company began serving thousands of Connecticut residents on Medicaid, both adults and children. VEA was awarded a three year, $140 million state contract to provide non-emergency rides for sick residents, but these residents and advocates say the vendor has been hard to get a hold of or rides haven't shown up, causing patients to miss important medical appointments like dialysis. It turns out this vendor has run into issues with other states, so why did Connecticut award this contract to the particular company? Joining us now to explain is Martha Shanahan, a reporter covering health and the environment for the day. Martha, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy, thanks. So, tell us a little bit more about Veo.
4: Yeah, so Veo is what is called a a transportation broker, Um, the the, and it fulfills a service that is a benefit that has been given to Medicaid members um, uh, since uh, for for, since the Medicaid was program was um, first started in the the sixties, and
2: uh, Veo took over. Nope, oh, I think we lost Martha. Let's see. Martha, are you there? Yeah. Can okay, you sorry. Now we can hear you. Go ahead.
4: The contract, basically, as the middleman
2: uh, between the state
4: and... Um, the sort of organizing the rides and matching people who need rides to their doctor's appointments up with a taxi or an ambulance or a wheelchair van to get them to their doctor's appointments. And that started on January 1st.
2: So uh, tell us a little bit more about the, the company that uh, was doing this service for state of Connecticut. Why did they make the switch?
4: Um, the, there was another company called Logisticare, which um, uh, had been fulfilling that role for the, for the state um, for, for several years. Um, And uh, in around 2016, uh, advocates for patients um, and uh, legislators and some other people started advocating for the state to start reconsider, reconsidering who which company it was using Um, for for a few different reasons. I understand there were some complaints um, about the service that, that that company was. Was providing um, and uh, including, uh, I believe that they were um, giving rides to children who whose doctors had said that their immune systems were compromised, so they couldn't be in a car with with an, with a with another person, um, and they were violating those rules and putting them giving them rides with with other people and sort of sharing rides. So that um, led people to push the state to. To go out to bid for a new company, um, which and that process uh, sort of ended in 2016 when they when they when they put out a request for proposals and um, considered five or six different companies and chose Veo.
2: Now uh, we'd mentioned earlier that uh, Veo, this California company, uh, had also had contracts in other states, and there were some issues, I believe, in Idaho. Can you tell us about that?
4: Yeah. Veo had the contract with uh, the um, equivalent of the Department of Social Services in Idaho to provide medical transportation for that state's Medicaid population. Um, And uh, after, I think it was after Connecticut chose Veo as, um, as as the broker in Connecticut, uh, they ended their contract with Idaho. Um, it's a little ambiguous what exactly happened there. Um, neither the the state nor Bayo has really said exactly what happened, but it, from news reports coming out of Idaho, uh, it sounds like a lot of similar issues were happening um, than we see in Connecticut, including people being left for long periods of time, at their doctor's appointments or never getting picked up to go to the appointments in the first place or being on hold for
2: uh, extensive periods of time. Uh, Joining us uh, in this conversation about uh, Veo, again, uh, this uh, company that's been contracted uh, to provide uh, uh, non-emergency transportation services to patients on Medicaid that includes adults and children. Uh, Martha Shanahan's a reporter for the day who told us a little bit about uh, the the context surrounding this and how it came to be. But uh, right now, uh, Bonnie Roswig is on the line. She's senior staff attorney for the Center for Children's Advocacy. Uh, Bonnie, welcome to the show.
1: Good morning. Thank you so much for having me.
2: So um, tell me a little bit about uh, what you've been hearing from patients about uh, VAO.
1: So it's been an incredibly difficult time for patients really since the beginning of the contract. So you have to understand that this is $160 million um, that VAO is receiving, not only in terms of administrative costs, but they upfront get the cost um, for the cabs themselves. From September 15, 2016 to December 31, um, 2016, they got um, almost a million dollars. That's $941,000 to set everything up to make sure they had all the patient information and all the information regarding what cab companies to use um, so that they were to be good to go, as we say, as of January 1st. Um, this was a contract with the state of Connecticut, and they contracted that the state had to ensure that, um, that VAO was prepared as of January 1st. As of January 1st, it was a disaster. Um, people were waiting on the phone for three hours. Um, dialysis patients weren't being picked up. Rides weren't coming. Um, people were not getting – people in wheelchairs were not getting wheelchair rides, Um, it was hugely problematic. And remember, these are the sickest and most vulnerable people trying to get to the doctor. I mean, this isn't, you know, this isn't something that that is, that somebody has a choice about, is it's really to get to fundamental medical services. So it's been incredibly difficult and the service has not been good. Um, And it was a similar experience in Idaho. Um, Many, many problems. There were many news reports of incredible difficulties in terms of performance by VAO um, and ultimately um, efforts by um, at least from from the news reports and talking to advocates um, in Idaho. They worked to, to try and remedy it, um, and then ultimately they um, parted with Idaho parted ways with
2: Veo. Now, can I ask you, Bonnie, um, we reached out to Veo uh, in a statement. uh, They wrote, uh, we've seen significant improvements in our call centers. We just completed a four-week retraining of all agents on protocols and customer service. Our average speed to answer is 45 seconds. And they're also now saying in the statement, we're hearing positive feedback from the majority of stakeholders across the state. So I'm curious, between January and now in September, have there been improvements?
1: So I have to say, the calls, your call gets picked up sooner um, than, you know, than it used to. People are not waiting three hours as they were, you know, for many months. Um, And, but the rest of it is not because, um, VAO did anything particularly proactive, but because the state on some levels forced them to comply with the contract. So for example, VAO was refusing to transport anyone who needed a wheelchair from January 1st through July, um, the state said, ultimately the state said, you know, you have to do that or we're going to, you know, potentially find you in breach of the contract. But, you know, why the state didn't insist that that happened beforehand, um, I, you know, I have no idea and I have no idea why the state's allowing VAO to do this. In terms of all the wonderful improvements they've made in the retraining, you um, they talked about that um, last week at a legislative committee where the whole system had been retrained. But in the month of August, um, I had one client who um, suffers from muscular dystrophy, has a prosthetic leg, um, and, you know, was told that they weren't going to take her by cab anymore and that she had to take a bus. Um, I had another patient who was a paraplegic. Um, and they just didn't give him rides at all. Um, and I had a third patient who suffers from kidney disease who, again, was told that, you know, now, again, now you, we're not going to give you service anymore. Um, and you have to, you, you just have to figure it out on your own. So all of these very serious, very specific um, issues for, again, the sickest, most vulnerable patients has happened since that supposed training. Mm-hmm.
2: This is where we live. On the phone with us is Bonnie Roswig, senior staff attorney for the Center for Children's Advocacy, also a reporter for the day, Martha Shanahan, as we look into a situation uh, with uh, thousands of Medicaid patients who rely on non-emergency transportation services. Uh, the state contracted with a California company. That uh, service began in January, and there have been a lot of issues uh, since then, as we've heard um, from our guests. Um, you can join our conversation, too. Uh, maybe you rely on VAO, The number, 860 7-5-7-2-6-6. Sue's calling from Monroe. Sue, go ahead.
5: Hi, I'd like to discuss my son's um, problems with VAO. Uh, unfortunately, my son had to stop attending his extend program because of VAO and their complete disregard for his safety.
2: So tell me what was going on.
5: Well, they. Um, from the very beginning, they would show up with drivers who I couldn't communicate with because they didn't speak English. Um, another time, like the first week, the driver picked up someone else in the car with my son in the car. Now, my son has emotional um, disorders, and he has, uh, you know, he's very paranoid, and he he gets very upset very easily. And it upset him. It it actually made things much worse for us and the times that uh, we didn't have an issue was when they didn't show up. They would show up maybe three times a week out of the five times. Um, they went to pick him up at school one day early and then left because he wasn't there even though they were instructed to wait for him. Uh, he was at the school by himself for an hour. Um, the last final straw was my son was in the back seat of the cab, they were driving to his program and the, the cab driver picked up another woman who was complaining about having the flu and my son had a pickline line in his arm that went directly into his heart for mm-hmm. medication and they picked up a woman who had the flu while he had this in his arm and that to me was the final straw and I am I called them every single time there was a problem I called San Diego and spoke to the you know the head honchos over there they promised that they would fix it and when they didn't they ghosted me they totally just disregarded my calls my messages and when you call veo their headquarters you can't get through to a human being you know so and not not to mention that veo was incredibly reckless with my son's safety is the fact that i had called the state every time as well not just veo and the state's only only words to me were we're uh, investigating the issue. We'll call you back. Not once did they return my phone calls.
2: Well, Sue, we have someone on the line from uh, the State Department of Social Services. If you could uh, hold the line, I am going to bring into the conversation uh, David Dearborn, who's spokesperson for the Department of Social Services in the state of Connecticut. David, welcome to the show.
6: Good morning, Lucy. Thank
2: you. I'm I'm sure you're able to hear um, from this parent, Sue in Monroe, about issues that um, she had with Veo transporting her son, who had a a medical condition. Can you talk about how um, the state has worked with state residents to alleviate these concerns?
6: That certainly is a horror story, and uh, it's not excusable, as are some of the other complaints uh, that have been described on the show. Overall, uh, there have been improvements, Uh, VAO has demonstrated some improvement. Uh, Many of the advocates and uh, uh, hospital uh, representatives, for example, I think would would validate that. But we're still uh, nine months into the program. There's a long way to go. Transportation is one of the most difficult services that Medicaid programs deliver, not just here but in other states. And over the last decade, we've had multiple contractors. We used to have a regional system. Then we went to statewide to care, which uh, Martha discussed. And a couple of years ago, we started redesigning the system. We put it out to bid, state reprocurement. Uh, vao uh, actually total transit out of Texas with Veo, uh, won the procurement, lower costs, more technological uh, um, solutions. There's been problems, no doubt about it. But uh, the system is evolving, and we believe that gradually it's getting better. We're nine months into this. The verdict's still out, but it's getting better.
2: Uh, David, uh, we heard from Martha Shanahan and others about uh, Veo having issues uh, with uh, a contract they had in the state of Idaho. I mean, how um, did did the state do a good enough job vetting this company before awarding this $140 million contract?
6: I think Idaho popped up uh, after, and... You know, I beholder, you might want to talk to Veo about that. I think Veo's uh, standpoint would be that maybe uh, the state of Idaho changed some contractual uh, parameters that they didn't agree with, but uh, we're more concerned with what's going on here in Connecticut.
2: And then as far as uh, what uh, Sue, uh, the mother, had said when she called the state, she didn't get any kind of response. Um, I know that, this, again, this is something that uh, residents are working with VAO in terms of uh, getting appointments and if there's no-shows, but could the state be doing a better job responding to residents here?
6: Lucy, I think we could always do a better job. I don't know where Sue called. You could give Sue my phone number, and I'll uh, personally expedite. I do know that our staff that oversee the contract do a lot of complaint troubleshooting and resolution. Uh, it's a constant job. Uh, they work closely with VAO. Again, we're seeing some gradual incremental improvements. So we're, we're looking at things positively, much more positively than we were at the outset of uh, the scenarios that Bonnie just described.
2: Uh, Bonnie, you're still on the line. Again, Senior Staff Attorney for the Center for Children's Advocacy. Did you want to respond to uh, David Dearborn's comments?
1: Yeah, we still have major, major issues with the state's oversight of the program. I mean, the bottom line is just the state's responsibility to make sure that Medicaid patients get transportation. The stories that I related, you know, uh, news stories come in constantly, weekly, um, and it's just still not working. Um, and so the state should needs to make sure... That VAO, you know, does their job because at the end of the day, this is a these are federal monies, um, and the state is required to provide Medicaid recipients um, this service. So, one, they need to radically bump up their oversight, and two, they need to think about um, within the contract. They are if um, the contractual language is that if you know it goes to the benefit of the citizens of the state of Connecticut then they can either end that contract or extract, you know, portions of the contract and give it to someone else if VAO isn't doing their job. Um, and the state really needs to look at doing this because we just are not seeing the improvement um, that, you know, that that needs to be done. I mean, nine months is a really long time. VAO claimed that they did this in other states. You know, why is it just not happening? Why are people being told you know, why are people who are in wheelchairs being told that they have to take the bus? Um, this is just not acceptable.
2: Uh, David, did you want to respond before we take another call?
6: Well, I think we're doing just that. I think it's uh, it's a challenging task. Four million rides a year. Uh, we've had complaints about this program, as other states have had complaints about their programs, uh, well before VAO came along. Uh, the same things that Bonnie's talking about, virtually, she was complaining about during the the previous contractor. And it's it's a difficult, difficult program. It is not something that we flip a switch and all of a sudden we have the performance that we want to have. So we're working on it. We don't disagree with her, much of her premise. Uh, we disagree with some of it. Uh, we can't just turn a battleship around and, and break up a contract. Uh, there would be chaos, more chaos in her eyes, uh, and there would be pandemonium. And so there always is a difficult transition period. We're past the transition period, incremental improvement is is happening, but when we look at the past, and I know the past is not today, but there is no panacea when it comes to medical transportation programs. Logistic Care, based out of Atlanta, took a bunch of hits from us and the advocates. Uh, Bonnie complained to the federal government about logistic care, the, the feds kind of threw that out, but the problem was there was problems there. And previous to logistic care, we had a regional solution that wasn't a solution, so we got rid of that. So it's a constant work in progress. We believe we're getting there.
1: Uh, can, you, can I just say, I don't, the federal government investigated that case. They did They took that very seriously in the complaints because... What's really fundamental to this is protecting the rights of people with disabilities. Um, VAO and Logistic Care weren't doing that, and it's concerning that the state isn't ensuring um, that that continues to be done.
2: I wanted to bring back into the conversation Martha Shanahan, again, who's been uh, covering this story for the day. Uh, We heard um, from a listener. We've also uh, got another call earlier before the show. Um, These are the similar complaints that you've been hearing from residents, Martha?
4: Yeah, uh, and somewhat less so as of recent. Um, but I have, as I have continued to reach out to to folks um, who started calling me in the first couple weeks of January um, to with with similar complaints that sound a lot like what what they were describing. Um, they they're somewhat less severe and people have said in, in, in many occasions that, that the service is getting better and that they're starting to to see some reliability coming from VAO. Um but in other instances they're they're saying there are other problems or they are and I, I think a lot of people were um they lost a little bit of trust in the system and I and and, and Sue mentioned that she had stopped using altogether because she, she felt like she couldn't trust it. And I think a lot of people are still sort of every time they go to um, to, to call Vayo and to try to schedule a ride, they, they can't be sure that it's going to, to come. So I think there's still a certain level of uncertainty there.
2: I want to thank David Dearborn for joining us uh, earlier uh, on the show. I wanted to go back to Bonnie Roswig, uh, Senior Staff Attorney for the Center for Children's Advocacy. Bonnie, what are you going to be uh, looking for in the weeks ahead? Because we heard uh, David Dearborn say that, um, you know, they felt like they were in the transition period and there are improvements. And then he kept saying that uh, transportation uh, for uh, this uh, amount of people can be difficult, but that's not a comfort for those who are waiting to get to their appointments and like Sue and Monroe, uh, whose child, um, you know, had an issue and a severe uh, health issue and was, you know, riding, the, riding, taking a ride with somebody with the flu possibly.
1: Right. Right. Correct. Correct. Um, you know, we are, um, this, this, everyone has had experience. One of the major problems with logistic care was that the state didn't do the appropriate oversight to ensure that Logisticare did the transportation correctly. We were very vocal about that and very concerned because as a bottom line, people are suffering. Um, Dialysis patients have to get to their dialysis. People in mental health treatment programs need to get there. Um, Children need to get to chemotherapy. So we were very vocal and very concerned. When VAO got the contract, it was our hope that the state would really step up And ensure that um, the contract was complied with and we just haven't seen that and at the end of the day it is um, the state's responsibility to make sure that happens they have um, committed to the federal Center for Medicare and Medicaid advocacy services rather that 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 transportation will happen that's the basis of the receipt of the federal monies and we're just not seeing it so um, yeah, it was the same with the care because it's our feeling that the state didn't do their job. And, and we continue to be very concerned um, that the state is continuing not to provide the requisite oversight.
2: It, uh, and uh, Bonnie, we got to end this uh, segment uh, pretty soon. But I guess the question is, uh, um, could litigation be something that comes down the line if you don't see those improvements?
1: Well, you know, we need to make sure that people's you know, rights are enforced, and, and, and we're looking at all avenues.
2: Bonnie Roswig, Senior Staff Attorney for the Center for Children's Advocacy. Bonnie, thank you for joining us. Also, Martha Shanahan is a reporter covering health and the environment for the day. Martha, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, are e-cigarettes a healthier option than cigarettes? And how popular have they become among young people? Coming up, a researcher will join us to talk about a recent study of e-cigarettes. Should health providers and parents be concerned? We're going to find out right after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. This month, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration sent warning letters and fines to retailers who've been illegally selling e-cigarettes to minors. FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb says it did so after, quote, clear signs that youth are using e-cigarettes at, quote, epidemic proportions. Uh, there's a researcher who's been looking into uh, e-cigarettes, and he's joining us now uh, by phone, Dr. Andrew Highland, Chair of Health Behavior at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center in Buffalo, New York. Uh, Dr. Hyland, welcome to the show.
7: Thanks so much for having me.
2: So tell us more about e-cigarettes. They've become popular over the last couple of years. How are they different from the traditional cigarette?
7: Yeah, so uh, e-cigarettes are, uh, they deliver nicotine, but they they heat it rather than burning uh, like cigarettes. Uh, so it's really it's that simple. E-cigarettes are a much simpler mixture, usually uh, 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 nicotine with some flavors in a solution maybe propylene glycol or vegetable glycerin uh, and that's pretty much it. It's heated and that releases the nicotine into a gas and then the user breathes that in. Unlike cigarettes which you burn the tobacco and there's thousands of chemicals, dozens of carcinogens and uh, including nicotine uh, that that goes into uh, uh, the body And, and nicotine yeah, is the agent that makes people keep coming back.
2: Now, uh, for parents who are listening, uh, these products, these e-cigarettes, are often sold under brand names like Juul and Blue and Logic. Uh, so are these uh, something that are used widely among both uh, teens and adults, or you know, I'm just curious about uh, when they've come into popularity and who's using them?
7: Yeah, so e-cigarettes are relatively new technology. Uh, In the U.S., we see around 2011, 2012, when the uh, use rates really began to increase. Uh, In kids, there's some surveys uh, that show that actually more kids are using e-cigarettes than cigarette smoking. And uh, we also see, you know, fairly extensive use in young adults and older adults as well uh, across the board. So it's really this kind of rapid uptake uh, in the use of a product, e-cigarettes, that has caught uh, the attention of a lot of people.
2: And how are they marketed? So retailers are not able to sell them to anyone under 18?
7: Uh, well, that's, uh, that differs in different jurisdictions. Cigarettes across the board throughout the country, you need to be at least 18 uh, to sell uh, cigarettes to, uh, to consumers. Uh, e-cigarettes are, right now are in a bit of a regulatory gray zone uh, because they are new products. Uh, they're not covered under a lot of the existing federal or state uh, legislation that might exist. So the minimum age uh, laws are some states have them, some states don't. Um, in terms of how they're marketed, uh, it's really across the board. Some, uh, some e-cigarettes are marketed to help adult cigarette smokers quit smoking, uh, but we also see lots of evidence that, the, that they're cool, hip, uh, uh, attractive flavors, colors, that some think that may be looking to attract a, a youth uh, uh, market into the mix.
2: Uh, You mentioned because it uh, varies from jurisdiction and because they're so new, is that why these advertisements aren't restricted in the same ways as how uh, cigarette manufacturers can uh, market their products?
7: Yes, that's essentially it. I I mean, there have been some recent uh, developments in there with the FDA, which now it's only, it's been not just, not even 10 years now—just under 10 years—since the FDA has had regulatory authority over tobacco products, uh, is their marketing and their the, pro- the products themselves. E-cigarettes are a, a late addition to that mix. Uh, and just recently, well, within the last couple of years, you're not supposed to advertise e-cigarettes toward kids, uh, so that's a no-no. Uh, and then very recently, uh, e-cigarettes are now required to have a, uh, a, a warning that, indicating that nicotine is addictive. Mm-hmm. So these are steps In the the direction of being more consistent with other uh, cigarettes in particular, but there are still uh, because these products are new and the the regulation basically hasn't caught up uh, yet to where the cigarette uh, legislation is.
2: Uh, I've also uh, read that uh, these uh, products, uh, these e-cigarettes, are not—they don't have as many toxins as, say, a traditional cigarette. But tell me about your study and uh, whether or not um, there's a relationship between uh, the nicotine levels uh, among uh, young people because they're using them more frequently.
7: Yeah, uh, yeah, great question here. Certainly, the e-cigarettes because they don't burn the uh, the product; they heat it. there, there's, just, there's far fewer chemicals that, are, that come off of an e-cigarette than come off of a, a cigarette where there's literally thousands of chemicals uh, and dozens of carcinogens. So cigarettes are absolutely um, a dirtier, more toxic uh, th- product than e-cigarettes. Um, that doesn't mean e-cigarettes are safe. It just means that they have less bad stuff in them, often a lot less bad stuff uh, in them. Um, The the particular study that that our group at Roswell Park did is, to our knowledge, it's the first study to look at uh, Juul-specific data. Juul is a a relatively new brand of e-cigarette, and it has really gained market share. It actually – it's the – uh, more people report using Juul than any other brand of, of e-cigarette product. Uh, and there, there could be some reasons for that. There's some chemistry of how they, they formulate it. It appears to be uh, better than other products. It also could be some of the marketing as well. That hasn't been uh, really teased out, but those are a couple, couple of reasons. But the particular study we did, we uh, surveyed uh, a bunch of kids on uh, Long Island at Stony Brook, uh, uh, Children's Hospital and asked them about their use of e-cigarette products, including Juul, and then we also looked at their urine and for a specific biomarker uh, of uh, their exposure to nicotine. So they basically basically a test to see how much nicotine they had in their body. And what was surprising is that these kids had levels, these Juul users, they only used Juul, they had levels of nicotine that were comparable to cigarette smokers. Uh, which indicates that they're definitely getting a lot of the nicotine out of those products past Previous brands of e-cigarettes are not particularly good at delivering nicotine. Cigarettes are very efficient the way they've been designed and engineered to get the nicotine to the user. But uh, but Juul seems to kind of mimic that that process. So the takeaway of that study is these these kids that are using Juul have just as much nicotine in their body as kids that smoke cigarettes. And you know the concern is that uh, the exposure to nicotine one is a long-term exposure. Uh, there, there's uncertainties on that, but that. Uh, could this be priming those, uh, those kids to become a, not only addicted to nicotine but then subsequently become cigarette smokers? Again, that dirty toxic delivery system of cigarettes and that's what we want to try to try to avoid.
2: So definitely alarm among uh, use of uh, these e-cigarettes among young people, but you mentioned earlier, and we only have a couple of, uh, about a minute left, uh, Dr. Highland, but uh, e-cigarettes are seen as a good transition for adults who are trying to, to step away from smoking.
7: There are, there are definitely a lot of anecdote. I know I, I run our, our smokers quit line for New York and New Jersey. We help tens of thousands of people quit smoking. I hear a lot of stories about adult cigarette smokers that say that e-cigarettes help them get off of of cigarette smoking which is fantastic if I had one message to say it's, don't use cigarettes if you smoke cigarettes do whatever you have to do to get off of them and if you don't if you're a young person or you don't use cigarettes don't start that's by far the most dangerous uh, thing that's out there uh, uh, so in terms of uh, these products and how uh, how they can be used to help adults. There's uh, still needs to be more scientific studies uh, that are done. There's some that are out there that suggest that.
2: And Dr. They Hyland, they we're people. actually going to have to leave it there. We're going uh, to link uh, to your study uh, on our website, WMPR.org slash where we live. Dr. Andrew Hyland, Chair of Health Behavior at Roswell Park in Buffalo, New York. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Carmen Baskoff and Kion Wolf.